chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the scripture. We praise you for the church and the way you have not only poured out your Holy Spirit on all of us as a group, but how you've gifted individuals. And we pray for the life of grace, that we would experience the fruit from the blessings of individual believers and the corporate body for your glory. Amen. So we're studying the book of Acts, as you know, chapter 6 just now we're we're looking at, and then we'll move into chapter 7, studying the life of Stephen briefly in chapter 8, and then we're going to be done with the book of Acts at that point. We'll go into our Advent season. And so what we've been seeing in these eight chapters, this being the sixth, is the Holy Spirit poured out on the church, a revival taking place. And we saw how the church went from 120 to many thousands, and now, by all guesses, uh, we're around 20,000 people ready to worship and serve their Heavenly Father, and they need structure. They need help. They're, they're connected to the Spirit, and they're walking in Christ, but they need help. I came across an illustration recently that I've heard before, but it kind of stu- stuck me. Um, during a blizzard in the Midwest, right, during blizzards, farmers, men who have to, and women who have to go out into the field or just out even into the yards have been lost. Like the blizzards are so bad. So their solution is to take a rope and tie it around their waist and then anchor it in the home and go out into the yard, even maybe at this point, not an outhouse, but in the old days, but just even a few feet. Because what we found is that people have gone out thinking they can make it back and they're dead. Isn't that encouraging? So my encouragement to you is buy a rope, buy a rope, a long, healthy, comfortable rope. We need that kind of humility. It takes a lot of humility to say, I need help. Even to do an ordinary thing, I need help. And in our passage, what we're seeing is this potential, because of the growth of the gospel, for another infiltration of evil. Right? Last week we talked about Ananias and Sapphira through hypocrisy who are trying to deceive everyone. But here, there's no sin, but it could easily become a thing that would bring the church down. Yet for the apostles' humility to say, we need help. 
Right? We need to be, t- we have a rope, we're tied to our Heavenly Father, and we're going to stay on task, and we need help. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning, that in order for this church and any church to flourish, we need our ropes. We need to have our tethering to our Heavenly Father. We need to know what we're supposed to do uh, with our lives, our calling. What is it we're called to do? What is our rope? That's the discussion this morning. And we're going to use that rope illustration for the points, the need for a rope, actually like tying it, like that takes humility because there's temptation to say, I don't need it, right? Choosing the right rope, and then finally the benefits of the rope. And each point will have a, a more clear description. So first one, need a rope, there's a problem. Point number one, we need a rope because there's this problem. There's a pastoral problem, right? You read in this passage, and right away there's this issue. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because of their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The background is, even in the Jewish church, there were distributions to widows. When a woman would lose her husband, if she didn't have children to provide for her, if she was of an age where she couldn't work in that culture, you couldn't just jump into jobs easily, there was a way for the church to bless the widows, and it was a daily distribution. So when the Christian church arises, when the, when the Holy Spirit comes, and now this community's exploding, that would be the assumption. We'll continue this daily distribution. And of course, it is right and it's good to do so. The problem is many of the converts are coming from a Greek-speaking background, the Hellenists. What that probably means is they were raised, if you'll remember back in Acts 2, in one of these other countries, and they've come into Jerusalem, whether temporarily at first or whether they've relocated. And as they become a Christian and they've enfolded into the church, there's a cultural difference. And and many of these Hellenists, uh, their widows were being neglected, but it was not intentional. So we know that in that moment, problems can arise. Now, the Greek word for complaint can mean and and means an utterance made in a low tone, behind the scenes talk, you know, whisper campaigns, right? Like there's this problem and it's a legitimate problem, but Sometimes the temptation in a church might be to begin discussing it quietly, insinuating there's a problem with leadership. And, and that began to happen right here. Um, I've heard, for example, I've never, I don't know of a specific, but you know, you, the, maybe it's folklore. If any of you know the situation, tell me. But like churches splitting over the color of carpet. How do y'all like the carpet we chose? We do a, a straw vote. Everyone's like, I never even noticed we had carpet. Sorry, I saw y'all. What is our whisper campaign? What are the things that we tend to quietly discuss? What I love about this passage is the humility of both the apostles and the people with the problem, the Hellenists, creates this, the willingness to just go and be honest and explain the problem. And they go in and they explain the problem. And what we find is the result is that the apostles take it very seriously. They, they take it very seriously. So we're going to move kind of quickly into point number two, actually tying the rope, the gospel solution. Point number one, or verse number one and verse number two, I think there's a lot between those. Right? Verse number one ends with the problem, and verse number two begins with, and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. However, it's not, I mean, there has to be, like, you have to imagine, what was that process like? Like, there... Did they all go in and have a formal meeting? 
Was it one of the Hellenists that went in and talked to one of the apostles? So here's what I'm going to say we know happened for sure. I'm going to just put it out there. Here are the three things that happened. Number one, the apostles heard the complaint. That's important. That takes the Holy Spirit. I'm a pastor, and I hear complaints, and I don't always hear them very well. And some of you can attest to that. And I'm not anywhere near apostleship. We're like 42 steps down, so please do not hear me saying that. What I am saying, when you're in a position of leadership, it takes a ton of humility to hear a complaint and not get defensive. And they hear the complaint. I also have a feeling they prayed because that's what they say they are devoted to. So they hear the complaint, and they pray, and they talk about it amongst themselves, And here's my third theory. These are all theories that aren't in this text. So you can challenge me, but I think the Bible talks about these things, right? They went to Scripture. How many of us already have thought of the Scripture of Jethro, right? You hear this passage and you think, wait, Jethro. Jethro is the father-in-law of Moses. You know the story from Acts 18? In Acts, or Exodus 18, sorry guys. In Exodus 18... Jethro visits Moses. This is right before Sinai. Jethro is his father-in-law. Moses has 40, you know, this entire city in the desert. And I was reading through this. It's fascinating. It, It looks like Jethro wants to kind of spend time with Moses. Imagine like you go to visit a relative and they're like a workaholic. That's what this feels like. And Moses is just doing all the work. And finally Jethro is like, what are you doing? Jethro's a priest, by the way, of Midian. And he gives Moses the advice, look, you're doing too much. You're working too hard. You're going to kill yourself. What you need to do is break it up. You need men over the thousands and men over the hundreds and men over the fifties and men over even less. And then the really big cases you can deal with, that way, I'm being kind of joking now, so forgive me. We're going to go golfing. Now we can go golf and enjoy time together as a family, right? Like, we can be together. You're not going to be worn out. Now, That actually is not in the text. The golf wasn't invented yet. But I will say that that Jethro does say, it will be easier for you. Like he's actually thinking about making Moses' life better. A lot of us are caught up in workaholism. We're caught up in trying to do everything. Uh, We're tying the wrong ropes around our waists. They're tied to the wrong things. We're killing ourselves. So one of the things this passage teaches us, the gospel solution, is having the humility to say, I need help. I need help. And so what we have as the gospel solution in our passage is what you might call a proto-diaconate. Right? Here at our church, you know we have elders and deacons. The deacon body we call the diaconate. And it comes after the Greek word, diakonia, which is in this passage, for serving. But most commentators agree this is not the official beginning of what we might call the deacons today. It's a type. I say that because Stephen, in the very next passage, uh, preaches the gospel and then is stoned to death. And I have not met one of our deacons who want that to happen. So this is a proto-diaconate, right? Yet, they serve tables. Let me just point out the two words. In verse 1, the word distribution, the noun, diakonia. And in verse 2, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve. That verb is an infinitive of that same word in its diakonane. 
And so you have this establishment of a Greek word saying serving is what the word diaconate means. Distributing. Now when you read the disciples or the apostles saying it's not right that we should serve tables. I'll be honest with you. When I first read that, I thought that's a little harsh. That kind of feels elitist. Um, until I started, under, that, that was my 21st century mind reading into it. However, all of us really value, when we go to a restaurant, waiters, right? It's like a very intimate thing. I was at a restaurant recently, and there's some number like, of moments that go by before you're not acknowledged when you start to panic. Does anyone know that feeling? Do they know I'm here? It said, seat yourself. What's the system? And then the lady came out and said, how can I help you? Thank you. We're going to survive. Um, Emily and I in seminary went to a restaurant in St. Louis in the hill. If you know St. Louis, there's an area where the Italian um, population have lived for many, many years. And they have a ton of Italian restaurants. In fact, there's so many. They're like houses without like little signs. And we were told which ones to avoid and try one or two. And we found one we were going to try. But we weren't sure. If it was like the one we were told. So we went in um, and there were these photos all over the wall of famous people. And the only two I remember were uh, Clinton and Al Gore. So I was really nervous. Um, Come on, that's just not working. Maybe Reagan. Do you remember the photos? But here's what we were actually thinking. What have we gotten ourselves into? Like how much is this going to cost? And they seat us before we could do anything. And they looked, you know, like the movies. So you sit down. And here's what I noticed that was so surprising. That's unlike any restaurant I've ever been to. There was a waiter for everything. There was a pad of butter guy. He comes up with a pad of butter and then, you know, and leaves. Then there was the person that sets the water glass down, but they don't pour the water. That's the water waiter's job who comes out and pours the water. Then there's the wine glass person. And then there's the menu handing. And I'm thinking, this is going to be a fortune. Like if there's this many waiters trying to help us have dinner, and then the menus came, and I'm looking for prices, and they're not listed. <laughs> and we just look at each other like, oh, here we go. <laughs> Maybe next semester we take off seminary and we just work. <laughs> it was a delicious meal, and the price was actually affordable. I just can't remember the name of the restaurant. So if you go to St. Louis, good luck. <laughs> but we had a great time. So serving is important. Serving is good. We're all called to serve. But even the apostles serve. If you look at verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The word for ministry, diakonia. They're basically saying, I'll be the pat of butter guy and you're the bread guy. We're not differentiating ourselves. What we're doing is we're saying, here's what God's particularly called me to do. And this might be what God's particularly called you to do, even if for a season. But we're all called to be a part of the solution of seeing the church flourish. One of the things that's striking also about this passage is the word disciples. Listen to how many times it shows up. Before in Acts, often you read the word believers, followers, but here you have now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. Um, And you see it several times. The 12 in verse 2 summoned the full number of the disciples. And it's assumed that the gathering was of the disciples. And then in verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Disciples. Are you a disciple? What does it mean to be that? 
there's a common misconception that in Christianity you have your everyday Christians and then sort of the special force Christians, the disciples. But that's not what you see here. Every follower of Christ is a disciple. To scare you even more, I looked at Matthew 14, or Luke 14. So last week we talked about the wedding banquet and how when you have a feast, don't invite you know, the popular people, the people that make you look better. Invite the poor, the lame, the blind. Well, the very next passage goes into discipleship and the cost of discipleship. And Jesus says the very heartwarming words, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Now, some of you are like, I got some of that, but not all of it, sorry. Yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What is Jesus saying there? Why would he say such harsh things? Here's why. If you tie a rope during a blizzard around your waist that's not anchored to Jesus, it's the daddy rope, the family of origin rope, the job rope, the I'm the best uncle rope, and you wander out in that blizzard, you're going to die. You need the rope of Jesus, the rope securely attached to him. And so what Jesus is actually saying in this passage is, if you go around thinking your identity is in all of these things other than me, you're not only going to lose them, you're going to lose me and them. The only way you can really love a father, a mother, a sister, a, a person in church, a brother in church, a sister in church, a child in church, is if you're fully tethered to Jesus as a disciple. When he washes the feet of, his, of the disciples in John 13, and he resumes his place. He says, do you know why I did that? And he's explaining to them, this shows you that I've left heaven. I came to earth. I die on the cross, which is gonna happen soon. I'm gonna ascend to heaven, which happens at the beginning of Acts. And you will wash one another's feet. So often, I'm afraid the modern church thinks of ourselves like it's a spa. Jesus is going to keep washing our feet. Maybe other people will wash my feet. But have we started thinking, how are we going to wash one another's feet? Is the gospel working in such a way that it frees us to do that? Because we're attached to God in Christ. So what is a disciple? Point number three, what's the rope? So I'm going to keep using my cheesy rope points. The qualities of a disciple will be the official term of this point. The cheesy term will be how do you choose the right rope as a disciple? What are the qualities? And we, draw our, we look back at our passage, and the apostles have told the gathering, you, disciples, choose from among yourselves men who are, will appoint to this duty, seven. And here's the qualifications. First of all, a good reputation and really, that's not a full orbed, that, that's sort of part of the requirement. But what, we, what they need to have within that reputation is that they are both filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Now, reputation gets a really bad rap because um, 
often we think of it as a negative, and it can be. Like, I live for my reputation. I, I want you to like me, so I change my behavior. That's not what's going on here. What's being said here is people who already demonstrate these qualities, and the two qualities are the Holy Spirit and wisdom. What does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? Um, I think this is tricky, especially in the book of Acts, because what we know theologically is if you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit, right? But why would some people seem to be more full of the Holy Spirit? A really bad analogy might be water. Everyone in this room knows we should be drinking water, right? Eight glasses of water a day. So if that's all you get out of this sermon, I've made us a little healthier. But how many of you wake up and do what I do? You drink coffee. I don't want real water. I want coffee. And then I want LaCroix. I don't really want pure water. I want things that might be seemingly getting me hydrated. But something about water, at the end of the day, I'm like, how much pure water did I really drink? Okay, this is just an illustration. You can drink what you want for the most part. But what I realize in my own life is so often I'm living tethered to things that aren't Jesus. So the rope, therefore, is not the Holy Spirit. So I can be a Christian and actually be a disciple, but not be full of the Spirit. I'm still living maybe in my um, partying phase from college, or maybe I'm still living out gossip from high school, or maybe I'm still living out workaholism that I learned from a parent. However it works, I might have parts of my life that are not tethered, do you see, to Christ. And so what they're saying is in order for these men to be helpful, we need them to be tethered to Christ by living in the fullness of the Spirit. And there's freedom in that. If there's a blizzard and you got to go out and do something, I promise you, you'll feel way better if you know you're tethered to that secure attachment when you go out the door. But if you're not sure what rope you tie, you grab something and you tied it and you wander out into a blizzard, you're never going to fully engage the task. You're going to be worried, am I, am I, is it working? Is this okay? And you're going to be so self-consumed. And the gospel frees you in the spirit to stop living for those things. Discipleship sets you free to go out and actually do the thing ahead of you. So the Holy Spirit and then wisdom Wisdom. I think wisdom is such a hard thing, um, but it's required to be wise, you have to have the Spirit freeing you, or you'll make bad decisions. If every time I have to make a decision, I'm thinking, what will people think of me? Will this give me the money I'm after? Does this look good on my resume? Like, I'm going to make bad decisions. But if I'm finding my identity in Christ, the Holy Spirit, and I move into a situation where it needs wisdom, I can make the right choice. Wisdom, simply defined, might be something like this. The art of making decisions that the Bible itself doesn't answer. The Bible gives you the parameters, but now in a particular moment, you're going to have to apply what you know without any certainty that it's correct. Is that weird? Psalm or Proverbs 26, I've talked about this before. It's just, it's the mascot of this concept. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. 
Okay? Put that down. Make sure you remember that. I'm never going to answer a fool according to their folly. I got it. Next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Dang it. I got it. Which one do I do? How do I choose? Answer not a fool according to their folly, lest you be like them. Answer a fool, lest they be wise. I need the Spirit. I need to be able to look at a situation and weigh it out. First of all, I need to know what foolishness is, right? I need to know when the fool is saying, hey, I don't care what your family likes you to come home for dinner. We work till 8 o'clock around here, and I have to make a decision. Do I just roll with it and become a workaholic over time? Not that it's wrong. I'm just giving you examples. Or do I begin to press in and say, I think it's more valuable that I'm with my family three nights a week. See, I'm answering. Do you see what I'm saying? What do I do in these moments? At other times, people are foolishly speaking in such a way that for you to begin to engage that discussion, you will actually become the fool yourself. So the point is wisdom comes when we are tethered to the right anchor, Jesus, because we have the Holy Spirit, which gives us the humility to look at the situation, pray about it, hear, pray, research scripture, talk to people, and make the right decision as a disciple. Does that make sense? Wisdom and the Holy Spirit. So what's an example of wisdom in our passage? Last point, the results. The results or the fact that they had the rope tied to them were rescued. The apostles have chosen, actually the apostles have asked the disciples, the, the gathering, to select the seven. And here are the names of the seven they chose. Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, at least one of those. Stephen Spencer here too, we got two of those. That's what I think of you guys. Now I also think, by the way, Luke tells us that about Stephen because we're about to get his detailed biography, which is going to get really intense next week. Because I believe all of these men are full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus. These are Greek names. These are Greek names. Remember the problem? The problem is the Greeks, the Hellenists, have a complaint. They're going to the apostles who are all Hebrew, Galileans, and they're saying, look, the Hellenists are being overlooked. And then the Hebrew apostles say, I'll tell you what we're going to do. You, as a gathering, you make the decision. Pray, look at the people you already know, reputation, figure out a system amongst yourselves, but we want them to be full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. And the gathering, send them seven men who are Greek. That is awesome. That is a very uncommon solution to a problem. Choose the minority. Choose the overlooked. There are plenty of Hebrews in this gathering that would have been perfect. And of course, they were used as well in many other ways. But it was just a fascinating thing that these seven appear to be, appear to be Hellenists, though they may not all be Hellenists. I can't promise that. Although I can tell you, Nicolaus is a proselyte, which means he converted to Judaism later in life. He wasn't born into Judaism. So the result is that the wisdom of the gathering of disciples made this decision. We do that here. 
we're coming upon a season where we're going to ask you to consider deacons and elders. Our goal would be in the new year to um, have nominations for new deacons, new elders, train new deacons and new elders, and install them and lay hands on them just as we see done in this passage somewhere late spring so that our leadership can be revived and rejuvenated and energized. We also uh, want to think about other ways to bring everybody on board. We are all disciples, and we want an all-hands-on-deck mentality. So we're processing other ways of doing ministry teams where particular groups would take over particular responsibilities and have a ton of influence on missions and other things that we're, that we're struggling to process at this point. We need help. I need help. The session needs help. The deacons need help because we're all together in this process, right? And what happens in verse 7 as a result of these people being chosen and of this situation, which could have been a powder keg explosion, not only being averted, but seemingly being handled beautifully by humility and the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I love that. That's Luke saying, listen, like, that's as good as it gets. Like, in his mind, the church grows, the growth were people who didn't just kind of walk, wander in nominally. They were disciples. They came in and devoted their lives to Jesus. And even priests that were Jewish priests became converted to Christianity. And the church flourished. That's the result of this process. By the way, we keep track of the sermon time on the back. It's only 14 minutes, right, Mark? So I've got about 25 more minutes. I'm sorry, I shouldn't do that. Oh, add 15 minutes to the timer. So what is that? Who does math really well? Where are we? We're there? 14 and 15 is there? Okay, let me close it up. I figured in my internal mind, I'm just on point five of seven. Revival, I've been thinking a lot about revivals and, um, and as I studied this passage, there's two things that happens with revivals, like the Great Awakening. First of all, l- clergy the professionals, are often converted. So you can pray, I think I'm a converted, but pray for the clergy. Oftentimes in our culture, the clergy, that is the people who are the professionals, aren't even Christians. We, so in revivals, you'll often have the, the clergy, as these priests are, converted. But the second thing you find that's so fascinating about true revivals, and let me be clear, by revival I don't mean like a planned event, Tuesday at 8, you know, we're going to have a band. I'm talking about these very rare but beautiful outpouring of the Spirit where the culture is changed. The Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, the Reformation, there's many. You see, the second thing you have is the laity. The, the per, I hate to use this language, the people in the pew. Becoming on fire and starting organizations and starting cultural change and making the real work of the church happen. And so that's our prayer at Grace, is that we would see the Holy Spirit poured out, that we would all join together as disciples, figuring out together how can we serve this community. I want to say a couple of words about church. Um, Our culture is such that many of you might think, this is just where I go for a little while. 
I might not be here forever, or I might be moving in a few years or even a few months. I would like you to think of church as like a house. Like when you move into a home, an apartment, a rental home, or even you buy a home, especially, what do you do? No matter how short or how long you're there, you take ownership of it. You paint the walls. You put up the photos. You bring in your furniture. You invite people in to have a meal and a beverage. This is your home for now. I don't know where you're going. We don't know everyone's future. But my prayer is that at Grace Church, while we're here, we will embrace the spirituality of the local church by saying, how can this church, with my gifts as a disciple, advance the mission of the gospel? So that's one major application point. Ask yourself, what can you do? What are your gifts? What ropes? Now, I'm kind of changing my metaphors a little bit. But like, think of the length of rope. If I need to go 100 feet out, I need a different length tied to Jesus. The rope's the Holy Spirit, but the length has to do with my calling. Does that make sense? I'm probably butchering that. What are you called to do? How are you serving the community? Okay, second application, personal life. Are you a disciple? If you think, I don't know, then you need to ask, do I know Jesus? And that's not to be harsh. It's a very healthy thing to say, do I really, have I really surrendered my life to Jesus? And I think there's many of us who are Christians who have a lot of weight and a lot of guilt. And I'm hoping that when we come to church and you hear the gospel, as a Christian, you're feeling the revival of Jesus' love for you through the meal, through the gospel proclamation that you are loved, that you, your identity is not in your reputation and the things you did or didn't do this week, the things that are going through your brain. Your identity is in Jesus and he has purchased you. If you are a Christian, you are a disciple and he's calling you into a life of discipleship. And there will be seasons where you feel his presence more, and there may be seasons that are harder, but do you at least identify as a, a disciple? Secondly, how do you practice your discipleship? I, I think that's a really important thing. Like, when you think about it, do you think, well, I don't know, I just, I don't really have a plan. Like, are you praying? Are you reading scripture? Are you fellowshipping? I'm just thinking of simple questions that might help us um, pick this apart a little bit. Are you aware of your calling? And here's the last practical piece. Are you saying no to things? And I really mean that like you should say no to things. Like the apostles did one of the scariest things you can do in church leadership and say, that's not my job. Like that doesn't work very well. You know, sorry, that's not my job. Like here's what I'm called to do. I'm called to do these few things well. Do you know those few things God has given you for the church, for your life? Or are you weighed down by like a thousand ropes that aren't tethered to anything? So I would encourage us all to, in light of this passage, think those thoughts and pray, Lord Jesus, help us to know what you're calling us to do to serve our families well and to serve your kingdom well in this church. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you that you have given us the freedom and the, and the joy to serve your kingdom.
through Grace Church, through many other places in our lives. But Lord, we confess that so often we, we spend ourselves out. We say yes to so many things <clears throat> that we maybe shouldn't be doing because of our lack of ability or lack of time or energy or resources. And then, Lord, we say no to those things that you've given us, really good gifts to do. So, Lord, I pray for this congregation that we would see the grace and the mercy of Jethro's advice to allow people to help us in life and in ministry so that we can do what we're called to do well. Lord, each of us is called to serve the table. Each of us is called to minister in some particular way. And I pray we would wholeheartedly take that mantle and do it with joy for your glory. Amen.